Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 136. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I am recording this episode on December 23rd, 2023, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without intentional presentism. Okay, so I had planned to finish this one well before Christmas, but I was overwhelmed by the spirit of the holidays, all of them, and did other stuff instead. So here we are on the very brink of Christmas, going on about something called the plundering time. Not really in the spirit of the season, Quesara sera. It is the summer of 1644. The English Civil War is raging, and it is spilling into the English colonies in North America. Opakankana has launched his last futile war to eject the foreigners from the James and York rivers, in part because it believes that the war has divided the English to such a degree that they will be weakened. He is almost right. His attack came just too soon, uniting the Virginians just as they themselves might have descended into intramural violence. But Opakankana had his own window. He had to attack after the crops were in and while Indian women and children had moved away to gather food in the forests to the west. And he himself was at the end of his own time. Maryland was in a precarious state, both politically and religiously. Leonard Calvert had been away for a year and left the intemperate Giles Brent to act as governor in his stead. Brent had arrested Richard Engel, the Protestant trader who was Maryland's principal commercial connection to the mother country. Engel had gotten away, and Thomas Cornwallis, Maryland's most effective leader, had gone back to England with him. Maryland was at war with the Susquehannocks to the north, and that was not going well. Protestant freemen in Maryland were resisting taxes to pay for that war and unhappy that the Catholic gentry had gone after Engel for essentially loudly proclaiming his support for Parliament. If you've not already done so, you would benefit from listening to the most recent episode, The Plundering Time of Maryland Part 1, before this one. On September 6, 1644, Leonard Calvert returned to Maryland, bearing a commission from Charles I to seize the assets of pro-parliamentarian planters in Virginia. He relieved acting Governor Giles Brent, who was up at Kent Island, and forthwith sailed down the Chesapeake to enforce his commission. He appointed William Branthwaite as acting governor this time, probably because he'd concluded in a short visit, no doubt having heard what had transpired with Ingle and Cornwallis, that Giles Brandt had botched things horribly, which he had. Calvert would have been in a hurry because he would have wanted to arrive in time for the meeting of the Virginia Assembly, whose help he needed, on October 1st. That is why he didn't take the time to sail the 80 or so miles up to Kent Island to straighten out Brent. Calvert, in fact, carried two directives from King Charles. The first was the aforementioned commission to seize London assets on the Chesapeake, London being shorthand for Parliament and its supporters. The second was a directive to negotiate with the Virginia House of Burgesses to collect customs duties on tobacco for the benefit of the Crown. 
Since the Civil War prevented the king from collecting those duties at home, he hoped to grab a stream of revenue from his subjects in Virginia. Unfortunately for Calvert, the political winds in Virginia were not blowing in his favor. As long-standing and extremely attentive listeners already know, Virginia's governor, Sir William Berkeley, had gone to England after Opakankana's attack to try and gain support for the colony, leaving behind Richard Kemp as acting governor. Both Berkeley and Kemp were friendly with Calvert and fundamentally royalist, but Kemp had neither the prestige nor the personality to get the Burgesses to take action on either of Calvert's mandates from Charles I. Not only were there friends and business associates of London merchants in the assembly, but the leaders of the colony were far more concerned with maintaining unity in the face of the resurgent Powhatans than in taking sides in the English Civil War. Leonard Calvert soon sailed home empty-handed. There is in this a bit of the ironic, which you guys know I always enjoy. Opakankana had launched his war because he believed the English would be divided in Virginia as they were at home. He had, however, united the majority royalist Virginians to such an extent that they would not follow the orders of their king in his hour of need. In other words, however much historians love to focus on the impact of the English Civil War in North America, the Third Anglo-Powhatan War reverberated the other way in the empty coffers of the King of England. That same summer, Thomas Cornwallis had his own legal problems in England. The Reformation had returned to London with a load of tobacco belonging to Cornwallis. Cornwallis, being Catholic, the authorities arrested him and seized the demon weed for the benefit of Parliament, subject to review by the Committee for Sequestrations. Richard Ingle testified to Cornwallis's character in the hearing, praising his honesty and recounting how Cornwallis had helped him in Maryland. On the strength of Ingle's vouching, the committee freed Cornwallis and released his tobacco. Not only was this decision interesting because it reflects the English concern with due process of law, even in the midst of a desperate civil war, but also because it makes something of a mystery of Ingle's subsequent actions which would severely hurt Cornwallis. In late fall 1644, Reformation and the other tobacco ships made ready again to sail to the Chesapeake. She would carry trading goods, a large part of which were owned by Thomas Cornwallis, who stayed behind in England. Captain Ingle applied for and obtained a letter of mark from Parliament, authorizing the seizure of ships trading with hostile ports. Given what happened subsequently, much has been made of this. Timothy Riordan suggests otherwise, that there's no evidence that Ingle or anybody else in Reformation was planning to go after royalist assets on this voyage. The documents describing Reformation's cargo suggest that this voyage of late 1644 was for trading, just as the others had been. Ingle was no Sir Francis Drake. The letter of Mark was just legal cover, in case a target of opportunity presented itself. Now, by the mid-1640s, the theoretically neutral Dutch were increasingly trading in the Chesapeake. By some estimates, half the ships coming into the region sailed under a Dutch flag, even if their crews often included a significant number of Englishmen. 
they tended to confine themselves to Virginia, which had 20 times the English population of Maryland. And anyway, Richard Engel had been the primary transatlantic trader in the northern Chesapeake for years. Why sail all the way up to St. Mary's when there was so much business to be done near the mouth of the bay? By the summer of 1644, however, word had gotten around that Richard Engel might not be welcome in Maryland. As Richard Engel was loading up Reformation and collecting signatures on his letter of mark, a ship in Rotterdam named De Spiegel, looking glass in English, was preparing to sail for the Chesapeake. Its contract for carriage was to sail to Virginia or, quote, to another locality if they be not allowed to land in Virginia. The ship's master was a Dutchman who rejoiced in the absolutely awesome name Hattrick Cornelius Cock, and its factor, essentially the chief merchant, was an Englishman named Henry Brooks Jr. Looking Glass would sail from Rotterdam on November 11, 1644, a couple of weeks after Reformation slipped out of the Thames. Reformation reached the mouth of the Chesapeake in mid-December. Richard Engel would have learned of Leonard Calvert's commission to seize London ships more or less as soon as he landed, insofar as there's plenty of evidence that it was common knowledge within a short time after Calvert appeared before the House of Burgesses in early October. Thomas Claiborne, he who had been ejected from Kent Island by the Calverts almost ten years before, and would nurse his grudge for the rest of his very long life, met with Engel, and according to testimony given after the fact by a Reformation surgeon, gave Engel a copy of Calvert's commission. Engel learned, either from Claiborne or from Argyll Yardley, with whom he also met, that Calvert had ordered, however ineffectually, that all debts to Engel be seized, and further that, quote, if Engel or any other should come from London thither, meaning to Maryland, I guess, he would hang them. It's difficult to imagine that Engel, whose motto is something other than forgive and forget, would reason that Calvert's threat, if indeed it had been made, was caused to steer clear of Maryland, which he'd regarded as his exclusive territory for roughly seven years. Riordan believes that it was at this point that Engel decided that there could be no peace with the Calverts. Engel brandished his letter of mark, read his crew a few words from it, no doubt skipping the ins, the outs, and the what-have-yous, and offered them a sixth part of what they would seize by plundering Maryland. Game on. Now let's go to Timothy Riordan, who believes, contrary to some historians, that Engel and Claiborne made an alliance. Quote, It is likely that Engel and Claiborne decided to act together in surprising the colony and plundering it in the name of Parliament. For lack of hard evidence, this must remain conjecture, but the plan may have been as follows. Claiborne and a small force of men would sail up to Kent Island where they would seize control of the fort. Engel would sail to St. Mary's and pretend to deliver Cornwallis's goods and trade with the inhabitants. Meanwhile, Claiborne, using his connections on the island, would raise the Kent Islanders against Lord Baltimore's government and sail down to join Engel with a large fighting force. Together they would plunder the Catholics and establish a Protestant government sympathetic to Parliament. 
Back to me. Claiborne brought two small ships, more like boats, to Kent Island, landing there just before Christmas 1644. He landed with a grand total of 10 or 11 men, who were soon joined by seven or eight more from Northumberland County, Virginia. With this less-than-impressive army, Claiborne proposed to stir up a rebellion against Giles Brent, who was the big guy at that end of the Chesapeake. Many of the freeholders had been there since Claiborne had established his trading post even before the first settlement at St. Mary's, and some of them looked back fondly on those tax-free days. But neither did they want to lose what they had built in the time since. The assembled locals asked to see what authority Claiborne had to take the island back. Claiborne waved around a piece of parchment and a letter, but whatever they said, neither were persuasive. The locals dispersed. Ken Island would not be taken back, and Claiborne and his men got in their boats and sailed away. Calvert got wind of all of this quite soon and issued a proclamation that required, among other things, that ships heading to Kent Island stop at St. Mary's first and obtain permission to trade. The proclamation declared Claiborne an enemy of the province and ordered Marylanders not to communicate with him. Meanwhile, the political divisions within Maryland got worse. Various of the key players, Brent, Lugar, and Calvert, descended into litigation over old debts. Protestant freemen chafed at new taxes to support the war against the Susquehannocks and build defenses against Virginia. At one point, during a particularly troubled meeting of the Maryland Assembly, Protestants demanded to see Calvert's commission from King Charles to plunder pro-Parliament settlers. Did it apply only to Virginians or also in Maryland? The Maryland Assembly took no chances. It declared itself for free trade with ships from London or anywhere else under the obedience of Parliament. At some point in late December or early January 1645, the looking glass of Rotterdam arrived at Keckerton, Virginia, near the mouth of the bay. Henry Brooks, the English factor, went ashore and met with a local sheriff who told him that Virginia had little tobacco that had not already been spoken for but that the trading in Maryland would be good because Richard Ingle had not returned. The Marylanders needed goods from Europe and would pay well for them. Of course, Ingle had returned, but word that he was back had not reached the sheriff. This sounded like a good lead to the crew of the Looking Glass, and within a couple of days it headed up the Chesapeake to St. Mary's City. After some fits and starts, the pilot was not very good, Looking Glass arrived at St. Inigo's Creek, just a couple of miles south of St. Mary's City, probably in early January 1645. Claiborne's mission to Kent Island had already failed, but England Reformation were somewhere in the Chesapeake and had not yet reached Maryland. Riordan says that Looking Glass did profitable trade with most of the large landowners in St. Mary's. Gross margins were excellent, with Looking Glass purchasing tobacco worth three to six times the European value of the trading goods that it had brought from Rotterdam. Then, within a couple of weeks, Reformation arrived. Ingle was, reportedly, enraged to see Looking Glass trading on his turf, which should surprise nobody given the profit margins. And, well, Ingle was easily enraged... 
Inglewood sailed back to Virginia in a huff, but not before making some mischief. Now to Riordan, quote, During his brief stay at St. Inigo's, Engel secretly sent letters to the chief Protestants in the colony, reportedly informing them that he had a commission from Parliament to plunder all the Papists and to root them out like vermin. Nor would he confine his plundering to the Papists, but would attack all those who would not take up arms with him. Finally, he told them that two other ships with similar commissions had gone up into other parts of the country. Historians have assumed that this last claim was simply Ingalls' bluster, intended to incite the Protestants to join him, but there actually were two ships at Kent Island under the command of William Claiborne. Back to me. The unanswered question is whether Ingalls had learned of Claiborne's failure. Since Calvert had declared Claiborne persona non grata or worse, Ingle probably knew that he had failed, so the reference to the two ships, if he meant Claiborne, was indeed a bluff. The Reformation sailed down to the Potomac and then up to a Virginia settlement called Chickacoan on the South Bank. Claiborne had helped found Chickacoan, and it was a great place to recruit people who had no love of either Catholics or Maryland. There he recruited, in the later testimony of John Luger, a dozen or so of the most rascally fellows of desperate fortunes he could get in Virginia. This rings true. When you're going to go a-plundering, you want some rascally fellows. Ingle thereupon sailed back to Maryland, reaching St. Mary's on February 14, 1645. He was not bearing flowers and chocolates. The looking-glass was still there, flying its annoying Dutch colors on her mainmast and the cross of St. George from her stern. This was a classic Dutch move, signaling neutrality and friendship. Unbeknownst to Engel, various Marylanders and Virginians were on board. According to some of the subsequent testimony, yes, most of what we know comes from testimony in the many lawsuits that were just around the corner, Calvert had been on board trying to persuade the crew of Looking Glass to fight Reformation. When Hattrick Cornelius Cock refused, saying he was neutral as between king and parliament, Calvert called him a coward and left the ship, presumably to raise men to resist Engel and his rascals, on land. The Reformation hailed the Looking Glass and, after some give and take, demanded that the Dutch ship strike her colors. Now to Riordan again, quote, According to custom, the master of the striking ship was to go aboard the other ship and present his charter, bills of lading, and other papers to the opposing captain for inspection. Captain Cox, still believing that everything could be settled peacefully, rode the looking glass's wherry over to Reformation to speak to Engel. Upon reaching the Reformation, he was seized and held prisoner. Cock informed Ingle that he was from Rotterdam and had no quarrel with either the king or parliament. Furthermore, when he finished trading, he was going back to Holland, not England. Cock then presented his papers to Ingle, as was the custom, and the Reformation's captain briefly reviewed them. Several of the Looking Glass's crew testified that Ingle tore up the charter and several other papers and threw them overboard. Back to me. Ingle knew that any prize he took under his letter of mark would be reviewed by an admiralty court at the behest of Parliament. 
since the ship's documents would contain all sorts of useful information in such a case, Ingle must have concluded that Master Cox's papers would hurt his case rather than help it. He miscalculated. Ingle sent a boarding party over to Looking Glass. The crew retreated into the forecastle and then immediately surrendered and came out on the deck. Now to reorden again, quote... The only resistance the boarding party met was when they tried to enter the cuddy, as the passenger's cabin was known. Finding the door barred and those inside refusing to surrender, they began to break down the door with axes. The only recorded injury in the whole attack occurred when someone thrust a sword out of the cuddy and wounded Thomas Green on the hand. It could not have been serious, since Green did not mention it in his own subsequent testimony. Once they'd broken inside the cuddy, the boarding party found Henry Brooks with two primed and loaded brass guns. Brooks chose not to fire and was forced to surrender. Later, as they searched the ship, Ingalls' men found Giles Brent hiding in the hold. Back to me. Now with two armed ships, Ingle tried to chase down a royalist pinnace, but it fled up a creek. We've seen that tactic before. And so he broke off the pursuit and set about looking for a base on land from which he could go a-plundering. Ingle settled on the perfect place, the manor house of his good Catholic friend Thomas Cornwallis, known as Cross House, on the navigable stretch of St. Inigo's Creek. Crosshouse was much larger and stronger than the typical Maryland digs, two stories high with a stone or brick foundation and brick chimneys. Of course, by today's standards, it was humble. There were probably only two or three rooms on the main floor, and the second floor was a half-floor attic. It might have been no more than a 1,000 or 1,500 square feet, but that made it luxurious for the time. More relevantly to Ingalls' purpose, Crosshouse was surrounded by a stout palisade and defended by three cannon. There was no better place near St. Mary's for a base, especially if one worried about counterattacks. Ingle had to have misgivings about seizing his friend's house. He probably reasoned that once embarked on his mission, the plundering of the Royalists of Maryland and the installation of a Protestant government, he had no choice but to occupy it. If Crosshouse were occupied by men loyal to the Calverts, Ingle would not be able to dislodge them, and his own men would be at constant risk. So, really, what choice did he have? The house and its grounds were occupied by Cuthbert Fenwick, a Catholic gentleman and his family, and perhaps a dozen servants. Presumably they were house-sitting for Cornwallis while he was in England. Ingle decided that it would be risky to storm Crosshouse, so he resorted to guile. He intercepted three of the servants, then they came out to fetch Cornwallis's pinnace, and two of them defected to him. Then he invited Fenwick out to Reformation, where he gave Fenwick the choice of writing a letter authorizing the surrender of the house or imprisonment on the ship. After one night in chains, Fenwick wrote the letter. After some further defections, the servants in Maryland were mostly Protestants and might have seen an opportunity to break their indentures. The remaining group, including Fenwick's wife, surrendered Crosshouse. Over the next few days, it would become the collection point for plundered goods and the prison for captured Catholics. 
Engel had promised not to plunder Cross House itself, but even if he intended to keep that promise, he did not do much to enforce it. He assigned a garrison, and then left with the rest of his men to find Leonard Calvert, which he was not able to do. Now back to Riordan, quote, When Engel returned to Cross House, he discovered that its garrison had found Cornwallis's silver and had already divided it into eight shares. Fenwick had hidden the silver in the woods at the beginning of the Troubles, but whether by accident or information from one of the servants, Ingle's men had discovered its hiding place and brought the silver back into the house. Whatever his original intentions, Ingle now gave orders to plunder the house and made sure that he had a share of the silver. Henry Williams, an English member of the Looking Glass crew, testified that Cross House was plundered three times. The first time, the plunderers took Cornwallis's merchandise, tobacco, and trading goods. The second time, they came back for all of the household items, including the furniture, linen, and even the hardware from the doors and windows. All that was left in the house were Fenwick's personal goods, which Engel had given assurances would not be taken. Needless to say, these disappeared next, leaving the house virtually empty. Back to me. Ingle even gave and then rescinded an order to burn the house down, and they did uproot the pails. Vocabulary moment. A pail is a pole or stake that is a component of a palisade. That's a thing I learned writing this episode. Ingle roamed around capturing the leaders of Maryland. He already had Giles Brent, and he quickly caught John Luger and others. Luger was surprised in his sleep and taken barefoot through the winter night to Cross House. One of the guards took pity on him and gave him shoes and stockings that had been plundered elsewhere. Engel never caught Leonard Calvert, who probably surrounded himself with a few loyal Catholics and eventually fled to Virginia. But he had Brent, Fenwick, and Luger in the Reformation's brig or it passed for it. Then... He went after the Jesuits, who had some of the most plunder-worthy property in the colony. Now back to Riordan, quote, There were now five Jesuits in the province, a number that would not be equaled until the 1660s. The mission possessed several large developed plantations, two well-furnished houses, and a number of smaller mission stations. The Jesuit home plantation at St. Inigo's must have been one of the places plundered early in the rebellion, as it was located near Thomas Cornwallis's plantation on St. Inigo's Creek. Father Copley appears to have been away at the Portabaco plantation when Engel struck. He gathered together some of the Jesuit tenants and supporters and began fortifying that house in anticipation of an assault. The Reformation crew referred to Copley's house as a garrison, and several people were held prisoner at Nathaniel Pope's fortified house, after the taking of Mr. Copley's house at Portobacco, all five Jesuits were soon captured and brought to St. Mary's. Back to me. The senior Jesuits, Fathers White and Copley, were important to Engel because their proved existence in Maryland would substantiate his claim that it was a teeming hive of Catholics and Royalists, Ingle did not need to take the other three priests, Fathers Hartwell, Cooper, and Rigby, back to England, 
but he could not just leave them in Maryland because the Protestants left behind to run the place wouldn't put up with them. We do not know exactly what happened to them. Records suggest they died in 1645 or 46 in Maryland or Virginia, but that's all. In all the testimony and all the litigation that followed, there was no suggestion that they were executed. The only clue was a story that emerged after the fact, implying that some of the Maryland Protestants took Cornwallis's pinnace, sailed the priests up to the top of the bay, and put them ashore in Susquehannock country. If so, it's possible they met a particularly gruesome fate. Regardless, a subsequent lawsuit by Father Copley, who made it back to England and was actually freed, detailed the clerical wealth plundered by Ingalls' men. They included beautiful clothing, the best furniture in Maryland, a valuable library of books, 21 servants, 36 guns, these were armed-up priests, notes against debtors worth 500 English pounds, gold and silver chalices and such, and a fair number of jewels. The Protestants were no doubt amazed and appalled. Then Ingle sailed up the bay to Kent Island and did what Claiborne had been unable to do earlier that year. He raised the Protestants against Giles Brent, who was still imprisoned on Ingle's ship, and plundered his house. Brent didn't have priestly wealth, and he wasn't nearly as wealthy as Cornwallis, so it is not clear that the plundering of Brent's house was a particularly profitable use of Ingle's time. It was, no doubt, deeply satisfying. And with that, Ingle's work was done. The holds of Reformation and Looking Glass were filled with loot. Ingle put his trusty mate John Durford, the man who had done the most, other than Cornwallis, to rescue him the previous year in charge of the Looking Glass. The Dutch crew were compliant. At this point, they just wanted to get home. But Ingle could not entirely trust them, so he mixed up the crews. After a brief stop in Virginia to onboard some tobacco, both ships left the Chesapeake in mid-April and arrived back in England in mid-June. Engel, who had never again returned to the Chesapeake, had left Maryland in the hands of the Protestants, who set up a provisional government at some point in the summer of 1645. Maryland, it appeared, had been liberated, and all but bloodlessly, the three Jesuits consigned to the tender mercies of the Susquehannocks being the main exception. Only one other person seems to have died during the period, Henry Brooke, the English factor on the looking glass. How he died, however, is not known. Ingalls' men, rascally as they were, had not actually killed anybody else, so he may have died by accident or gotten sick. Most people had fled. The English population of Maryland seems to have declined by 80% or more during the period. When the Protestants set up their government, there may have been as few as a hundred remaining settlers. When Richard Engel and his two ships got back to London, nothing worked out quite as he had imagined. Confessional differences and civil war notwithstanding, Parliament had tightly circumscribed the letters of mark it had issued and prescribed the precise procedures required to document lawful plunder. It did this partly out of Parliament's high-minded commitment to the rule of law, and partly for practical purposes. It did not want its privateers going rogue and plundering neutrals and allies 
which would drive them to the crown side. Riordan writes in painstaking detail of the subsequent litigation between Engel and all those he had plundered, including Cornwallis, the Jesuits, and the owners of the Looking Glass. He would lose all of it and end up deeply in debt. The details are more than even I am inclined to report, but since the subsequent litigation and testimony is the main source of information for the plundering time, I'll put a link to buy Riordan's book in the episode notes on the website. It's worth your time if you are an early Maryland nerd, as I, against all expectations, have apparently become. The question then becomes, why does the University of Maryland football team proudly display the Calvert family crest on its helmets? Parliament won the Civil War, and in early 1649 would execute Charles I. Lord Baltimore and the Calverts had been royalists, so one would think that Parliament would have delighted to leave Maryland in Protestant hands. The Calverts, however, were smooth operators, and the evidence that they had supported Charles I was not as obvious in those days as it would be today. Perhaps oversimplifying, they sold the idea that they had been as neutral as they could have been and avoided the usual ugly consequences of having picked the losing side in a civil war. As for Maryland, it was perhaps the least important place that Parliament had to consider. There were now only a hundred or so English there, and in the years following Ingalls' raid, it produced next to nothing of value. Nobody much cared what happened in Maryland. That left Leonard Calvert, now sheltered by royalist cavaliers in Virginia, room to maneuver. With a tiny population and a crushed economy, it's likely that the English settlers who had remained in Maryland began to pine for the good old days. In early August 1646, Leonard Calvert sent a message to Maryland offering a full pardon to the remaining Marylanders if they would submit to Lord Baltimore's authority. He then recruited a huge army of 28 men, roughly half of whom were exiled Marylanders and the rest Virginians who were promised rewards of some sort for coming along. We know who these men were because Calvert didn't pay them and his executor, Margaret Brent, would be left to compensate them out of Calvert family assets. In so doing, she would establish herself as the first stone-cold English businesswoman in the New World. But that's another story. We do not know exactly when Calvert and his company sailed for Maryland, but we do know that by December 29, 1646, St. Mary's City was back in his control, again without any known bloodshed. He seems to have caught whatever Protestant resistance that remained by surprise. Riordan says he threw the ringleaders in prison, but since we know that as of 1644, St. Mary's had no jail, that was one of the issues in holding Engel. It's not obvious what this prison was. Calvert probably just locked them in somebody's house. Kent Islanders being Kent Islanders, Kent Island still festered with rebellion. Shortly after Christmas, just as Calvert was settling in at St. Mary's, Thomas Claiborne made yet another run at Kent Island. Claiborne and his cousin, Richard Thompson, rounded up 20 and odd Virginians who still resented the very existence of the Maryland proprietary. 
and they sailed for the northern Chesapeake. Claiborne once again rallied the locals with his denunciation of the Calverts and the prospect of resumed Catholic tyranny. He asked them to join him in an invasion of St. Mary's. At first the crowd seemed willing and the islanders made some early preparations for war. Once again, though, skeptics asked Claiborne to show evidence that he had any sort of authority. He had none as usual other than his own bile. The would-be Protestant warriors drifted away, and within days, Claiborne would again return to Virginia with nothing to show for his adventure. Calvert, of course, learned of this soon enough, but was reluctant to leave St. Mary's to stomp on Claiborne because he was still unsure of the loyalties of the Protestants. He sent Nathaniel Pope, whom you will recall was a Protestant in spite of his name, to Kent Island with a message of reconciliation. Pope may have double-crossed Calvert because soon after his arrival, rebels under the command of Peter Knight sacked the house of Robert Vaughn, who was known to be a staunch supporter of the Calverts. Then Knight got word sometime in March that Calvert was now ready to invade Kent Island. Rather than risk actual war, he and his men plundered other Catholics on the island, scoured Giles Brent's house for anything that remained after Ingle had been through it 18 months before, and hightailed it for Virginia. Calvert did arrive at Kent Island in April 1647 and successfully secured it. There may not have been many people there. Some historians believe that the population had fallen to well under a hundred, so it may have been a symbolic reconquest rather than a substantive one. Nobody knew that Leonard Calvert would be dead within two months. After all he had accomplished and recovered, he would catch some fell disease and die suddenly. After an illness of only a few days, he would name his friend Thomas Green, who'd come over with him on the Ark, as governor. More remarkably, he would spend several of his very last hours talking with Margaret Brent, whom he would name as his executor. And that is why the Terps of the University of Maryland play football with a Calvert family crest on their helmets. And what of Richard Engel? He was broke and would never again appear in history after the many lawsuits and prosecutions in England. But he did outlive Leonard Calvert by six years and would die in 1653. How he died is not clear, but some historians believe that he was, finally, executed for having been a pirate. If a letter of Mark is ever issued in your favor, for God's sake, please read the fine print carefully. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page of the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and following me on X and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.